My name is Deanna Satie. Some of you who have been to our previous lectures know that I'm working with the Balfour Project um, as programs coordinator. So working on these monthly online lecture series, which has been going so well. Um, I will be posting in the comments in the chat box um, where you can find the recordings of the previous events. Um, this event is also being recorded, so we will be sharing it as well after the fact. So if you need to pop off um, before it finishes or you want to share it with friends, it will be available on our website. So as you know, um, we are super excited to be joined today by Sarah Helm. And um, Sarah was a staff correspondent for the Sunday Times and a foreign correspondent for the, middle, uh, for the Independent. And she's written two books, um, so shout out in the chat box if you've read them. Um, got here most recently, if this is a woman about the Nazi concentration camp for women. And um, she has also written a play about the Iraq war and she's currently working on a book about Gaza. And um, before we started to broadcast, we were having a little chat about it and it sounds fascinating. So hopefully she'll mention it and um, talk about it a little bit in her talk. So um, again, I will be available in the chat box. So please do pop any questions you have for Sarah uh, for the Q&A session um, after her talk. And I will relay as many as possible over to her um, during the session. And like I said, I will be popping any relevant links into the chat box, including our upcoming events, our donate button. So if you find this interesting, please consider a donation. And um, right, so I'm going to hand over to Sarah now. Over to you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Um, well, it's, it's uh, thank you everyone. Thank you very much for, for listening in to this talk. Um, and thank you very much to the Balfour Project for asking me along. Uh, it's a subject, uh, Toppling Balfour, which is um, dear to my heart uh, for many reasons. Um, I mentioned two of them. There's a personal interest I have in, in Mr. Balfour. I'm currently writing a book about Gaza, um, very much from a historical perspective, looking at the villages from which the refugees who now live in Gaza came from and, and trying to bring them back to life again and hearing the story through their voices. So this involves me going into houses a lot inside Gaza. And of course, as soon as I've stepped in, um, people look at me and uh, they realize I'm English. And the next thing is they say is Balfour. And, uh, or else they say, what have you got to say about Balfour? Or sometimes I get a whole tirade and I feel like I'm taking all the flack uh, personally for the Balfour Declaration. But mostly they're just very nice and gentle and they realize that I can't really, you know, be blamed for everything that has happened as a result of the Balfour Declaration. But uh, anyway, so it's a chance for me to, to put some flack back in his direction. Um, the second reason is, 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 is more serious. Um, as you know, we're living in a time of toppling statues, uh, particularly those that connected with uh, colonial crimes of the past, of slavery and exploitation of uh, the natives, which was a practice that uh, happened in those days. So the question is here, does Balfour's declaration, uh, which granted a homeland for the Jews in Palestine in 1917. Does his declaration need toppling too? There is no statue, I have to say, at least I, and my research suggests there isn't. So we could perhaps bin the, bin the declaration instead. 
Um, the question that I have to ask if we're going to do that is, did Balfour think Palestine, Palestinian lives mattered? Uh, just as people are saying now that colonial governments didn't think that black lives mattered. So that's what I'm going to question. So if the Balfour Declaration can be blamed for a lot of the conflict that has continued to this day, I have to just start by saying that in his defense, it didn't really start with him, this colonial enterprise. Europeans with colonial urgings were running around Palestine well before he got going. They were there in the mid-19th century. Uh, the Sultan, the Ottoman Sultan, uh, let this happen in many ways. He saw that his empire was crumbling and he needed Europeans as allies. So he allowed the Europeans to have special privileges. Consulates were opened and they were given these privileges called the capitulations, which meant they could operate outside Ottoman law to some extent. So um, with the consulates in place and these legal protections, if you like, it was felt that Palestine was safe for visitors. And as a result, quite a lot of business opportunities opened up. Trading with Europe began. Uh, steamers started arriving in Jaffa. And for example, we had a British consulate flag flying in Jaffa from quite an early time, as well as, as and obviously in, in Jerusalem as well. But the vice consul was in Jaffa, and at one point his name was Chaim Amzalak. He didn't even speak a word of English, actually, but he was the British consul in Jaffa, and he uh, knew how the citrus trade worked. He was, he was a Jew from Morocco. He also was very much in favour of helping look for land for early Zionists. But in addition to these businessmen, there were a lot of religious people going to look for biblical relics and so on. Um, it was an age of Christian Zionism. Uh, we can think of people like George Eliot writing Daniel Deronda. She inspired many of these people. Mark Twain went out and writers and explorers like that. But they didn't really notice the natives or if they did, they didn't think a lot of them. Um, Mark Twain described the natives of Palestine as immoral, ignorant, vain and bigoted and went back home very disappointed. Um, others, however, were also dismissive of the natives but noticed that they were rather wonderful in many ways. And people like James Finn, despite himself, he was an early British consul, fell in love with the natives. At least that's my impression. He saw that they were ignorant, as he put it. I mean, they were all illiterate. But he noticed how incredibly skillful they were, for example, at playing their reed pipes or, for example, planting a vine. He describes how the limbs of the arm were bent in such a way as to facilitate getting right down to the aquifer. And they were part of the land. This is the sense one gets from these people who were studying the natives as specimens, really, um, very much so. But nevertheless, you get the impression they really saw them as absolutely part of the land. And they realized they'd become like that from having lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. This was called a quiet crusade by some people. But of course, a lot of these quiet crusaders didn't stay. Some of them did, but most of them went back home again once they'd studied their specimens. But there was also another group, more serious in many ways, um, called the Palestine Exploration Fund Explorers. This was a, a group 
backed by the British government and funded by wealthy Brits on the whole. And amongst them were, were numerous rather extraordinary characters, including um, the young Horatio Kitchener, who arrived at the age of 26 and started triangulating Palestine because they were making lots of maps. In fact, they were mapping Palestine before a single Zionist colony had even been put there. So what they created, and Kitchener was part of this, was an extraordinary set of maps showing every single Palestinian village, every single Palestinian town, city, shrine, wadi, you name it, it was mapped. So it's a snapshot of Palestine before Zionism even began. But of course, this was also, didn't really take a great deal of account of the natives. Um, Kitchener was also very rude about them. Um, he describes how his men were, 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 had stones thrown at them at one point. So he, he said, I had them publicly flogged as if he already owned the place. But later Kitchener also seems to have kind of rather fallen in love with them. He discovered they were a great, great company and um, perhaps not literate, but they were intelligent fellows, he says, who he discovered he could parley with. And he'd be invited in for a long pipe and some dates. And he'd talk about falcons and camel riding and all sorts of adventurous things. And, and he got to, to, to like them a great deal and also to respect them. And he remembers how in one case, he, he, uh, he realized that the, they were fellows who's, who, who's ob, who, who felt there was an obligation to be true to people you have eaten with. And this obligation was sacred. I, I think he, he, he admired the, the peasants, if we could put it like that. And then of course, at the same time, come along the early Zionists. Um, these were of course different visitors in many senses because they weren't visitors, they were going to stay. Um, the early Zionists came from these appalling pogroms that were breaking out in Russia mostly at that time and many were living incredibly restricted lives in the Pale of Settlement and many of these early settlers were were intellectuals, uh, students, and very religious. And they were desperate to escape the hardships and the, and, and the atrocities that they were experiencing. And they came out to Palestine, and, but they literally, many of them did not believe there were any Arabs there at all. So whereas these quiet crusaders had found these peasants, the, uh, the uh, early Zionists hadn't expected to find anyone at all which is somewhat surprising, but nevertheless, it seems to be the case. Um, one such very early settler called Jacob Shertok um, went home soon after he arrived as he realized he, he couldn't really make a go of it and uh, it wasn't going to work very well. Um, others, however, continued to come, especially when they managed to get quite large sums of money uh, to help them in this very, very hostile environment. I mean, I mean hostile as far as working the land goes, not as far as the local population goes, because in the early days there were so few Zionists that the Arabs were, were, were not as hostile. But the money helped, of course, and so while the, the, uh, the, 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 the fellahin, the peasants, were using this extraordinary arm movement to bury their saplings for the vines, Rothschild was importing the absolutely latest state-of-the-art equipment by ship and unloading it to uh, make his own state-of-the-art vineyards. So 
Um, protests did begin very early on because, of course, some of these uh, early Zionists removed, kicked off the peasants from their villages as they gradually bought the land. And of course, they did then, of course, see them, but they, still they didn't see them as, as humans, really. They saw them as sort of subhumans. I have a quote from the people who uh, overtook the first Palestinian village. It was called Malabas. And uh, they obviously went to see the village before it was shoved out the way. And they saw these beings they describe as blind and jaundiced, blind with pus pouring out of every eye. So that was their first sighting of the Arabs. And of course, having seen them like that, presumably it was not too much of a problem to shove them out of the way. Um, as we move up towards World War One, there are more and more of these little small colonies beginning. And the Zionists are managing to buy land by bypassing the Sultan's laws. And with the help of people like Haim Amzalak, the British consul, British vice consul in Jaffa, who, who showed them how to bypass the laws and who to bribe on the way. But of course, although they had a bridgehead before World War I, the early settlers didn't have anything like a majority. In fact, they were only about 2% of the population at this time. Uh, so how on earth were they going to move on from there? Because they had already decided that what they needed in order to establish any sort of um, state here, because let's face it, that's what the ambition was, they needed to get a majority. How on earth could that happen if 98% if, if of the, the people in the land were Arabs? Uh, World War I breaks out, and uh, you would imagine that this is a project that's going to fall apart pretty soon. Um, but no, quite the contrary. The British were going to help out, even during World War I. This happened because Zionism had this extraordinary force, this extraordinary desire, this extraordinary longing was created to return to the land. And once they had got this bridgehead with these few small settlements, nobody was going to let it go, least of all those lobbying in London. And there were very many of them, and they were very influential, and they were in the cabinet, and they had willing ears listening to them. So, for example, we have Herbert Samuel, who was in the cabinet, and, and uh, uh, others in his ambit. And they were persuading British leaders that actually, in the first instance, Jewish uh, support would be increased if they, were, if, if they supported Zionism and would also help British, uh, the British uh, and the Allies win the war by gearing together Jewish support around the world and Jewish money. I've actually seen extraordinary intelligence documents, British intelligence documents, showing how this was assessed and how this was taken seriously. I mean, actually, as it turned out, it was highly exaggerated and largely false. But it was something that convinced the British that it might be worth supporting the Jews and supporting the Zionist cause. And they started discussing how once they won the war, if they won the war, uh, the Ottoman Empire would be carved up and Palestine could fall into British hands and then um, the British could support the Zionist project there. And that would generally help 
uh, encouraged the support during the war. Um, but there are many other reasons why the British, um, the British supported the project. I mean, Balfour himself was uh, something of a Christian Zionist, so he, he had sympathies with the Zionist movement. But, but let's not pretend that he was in any way doing this because he, uh, he supported the Jews. He didn't. He wasn't doing it for that reason. Indeed, Britain, which uh, many of these Jewish refugees from the pogroms had been coming to Britain and to America, of course, but we had been trying to stem that immigration. Some people even say that Balfour himself had some anti-Semitic tendencies and quite wanted to um, divert Jewish immigration to Palestine because uh, it helped reduce the numbers coming to England at that time. I don't know whether there's any truth in that, but it's been said. Um, but the main reason was that we wanted to protect our strategic interests and we thought the Zionist project would help that. So once the war was over and if we got our hands on Palestine, we were going to use it as a buffer state to protect the Suez Canal apart from anything else. And also as a route for, the, um, for an oil pipeline from Mesopotamia running to Haifa. Uh, and we wanted, we would need to put settlers there like we did traditionally in our colonies. Uh, the problem was that, um, that Palestine was a very poor place. It didn't hold out a lot of uh, prospect of, 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 of garnering resources there. And, and so very few British people would want to go there. But the Zionists were very, very keen to go there. So we encouraged that and we thought that they would be sympathetic, much more sympathetic to, to British policies, to the British government than any Arabs and, and also they would be grateful to us if they went there, so they would behave. So we encouraged the Zionist project because it suited our interests. And there's another reason which I'll just put in here, which I came across a wonderful quote um, about Lloyd George's um, attitude to, to this. He, he supported the, the, the idea of a, a Zionist homeland in Palestine um, and I quote, Asquith actually, saying that, of course, he, Lloyd George, doesn't give a damn for the Jews, their past or their future. But he does want the whole, he does not want the Holy Land to pass to the agnostic, atheistic French. So it was also one in an eye, one in the eye for the French was the other reason that we supported the homeland. So by the time it came for Balfour to draw this up, the foundations were absolutely rotten to the core. So before we even start talking about the actual declaration itself, we had looked at the foundations, i.e. the motives for, for, for putting it there in the first place, which are just cracks running through and through. Um, so many people thought it would actually be toppled before the end of the war. They hoped it would even during the discussions, including many British and American Jews, but it held on because the lobbying and the British self-interest were so strong. But let's look at the actual words. Um, Dana, I don't know if you can put the words up on the, up on the screen. I can, just bear with me one second. Um... Tell me when that's come up, please.
Ah, great. So Dino has very cleverly got hold of the original copy of the original letter, shown that it was actually uh, written to Lord Rothschild. I mean, it also has to be said that a lot of the, this, this declaration was to a large extent drafted by Zionists and, and Herbert Samuel and co in it already. So it's not surprising that it was written to the Zionist Lord Rothschild. In any event, if we just look at the words, and I mean, this has been analyzed many, many times before, and, and I'm sure anybody who's taken any interest has read it and, 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 and studied it. But I'd just like to point out a couple of things. First of all, before we even start looking at it, we have to be aware that at that time, 1917, November the 2nd, brackets happens to be my birthday, um, the Jews in Palestine constituted 8% of the population. 8%. So, you know, 92% were Arabs. They owned, by that time, 2% of the land. It's very important to keep those figures in mind to see how extraordinarily gobsmackingly unjust this whole idea was. But in any event, let's look at the words. Um, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. So first of all, all the words regarding the uh, Jewish national home are very positive, very active, verbs, um, viewing with favor, etc. Um, when it comes to the Palestinian side, i.e. the 98% population, um, first of all, Palestine and Palestinians is, is not used as a word at all. Uh, it being clearly understood that nothing, nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights existing uh, of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. So the Palestinians are the non-Jewish communities or the rights and political states enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Um, the, Jew, the Palestinian political and national rights aren't even mentioned here. Again, remember this is, um, we're talking about 92% of the population. As uh, my friend, Dr. Salman Abusita, who is possibly the most valiant uh, warrior on behalf of Palestinians from the point of view of the narrative war, he is, uh, his maps, should be consulted by anybody who is he's looking into the history of this, this conflict, points out that when this declaration was, was issued, not only was it unjust, but Balfour had absolutely no right to even consider such a thing. We weren't even occupying the country at that time. This is before the end of the war. In any event, given the uh, rocky foundations and the unworkable declaration, not least because we've not even defined a national home. What does that mean? Does it mean a state? Does it mean a small community somewhere? We don't know what it means. Um, given the unworkability of it, you'd think it would have all folded and gone away before the end of the war. And many people hoped it would, including many, many, many Jews in Britain and in America. Um, but already very strong steel girders were being put in under this edifice of a declaration by the Zionist lobby in the form of plans and funded arrangements for um, institutions of state. Um, they were already purchasing land. Um, for example, Weizmann had already been out uh, just after the end of the war 
and celebrating the purchase of a huge swathe of very fertile land in the north of Palestine, which was going to be used for Zionist uh, colonies. And he saw a few malaria-infested villages in there, which he didn't think would take too long to get rid of. So what did the Palestinians themselves think of this declaration when it was issued? Indeed, when and how did they hear about it? This is a question I've only started um, asking recently, but um, it seems, as I recently discovered in the British files, that, 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 that the British must have known this was dynamite uh, because they kept it secret. And they, uh, dictate, dictate, uh, they um, ordered that the, uh, not only were the Palestinians themselves not to be told about the existence of this declaration before the end of the war at the very earliest, um, but nor were the British military forces in the Middle East, because if they knew about it, they too would probably object, not least because promises have been made, as we know, um, to the Arabs that they'd have an Arab kingdom. So, you know, they were going to be pretty angry if they heard about it. So we kept it secret because it was too dangerous. I mean, this word is actually used in the British files to let people know. But of course, <laughs> they couldn't keep it secret for long. And especially since it then, we then took Palestine, Allenby walked into Palestine, it became British and we set up a British mandate under the League of Nations, which incorporated the Balfour Declaration. So eventually, of course, it got into the Palestinian press, <laughs> uh, which luckily had started up by then and was shouting and, 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 and arguing against the uh, atrocious injustice of this. And although the, you know, 99% of Palestinians, particularly the peasants, were illiterate. Uh, papers like Palestine were read out in the village cafes. Uh, one paper read out to sort of 100 villagers. And uh, they were completely stunned. I, my sense is that their first reaction was not so much anger as utter amazement. What on earth did it mean? I mean, I've spoken to people and read comments that basically the question was, what does this mean? How can they build a homeland in our land? I mean, it makes no sense. And if they were puzzled, then they were in very good company because actually by that time, half the British cabinet and most of the foreign office and quite a lot of the colonial office were also very puzzled by what it meant. For example, uh, Lord Curzon, not exactly a, a sort of against an, an anti-imperialist, couldn't make head nor tail of the Balfour Declaration and thought it was a disaster. So he says, uh, what does this homeland mean? I grabbed my dictionary. I see it could mean a state. This could give rise to great unease by the non-Jews. So he's really warning about this and he sends this warning to Balfour himself. Balfour apparently didn't seem to know what it meant either. This is stunning. Balfour replies to Curzon something on the lines of, really? That's not how I understood it at all. If it means a state, that's definitely unacceptable. So even Balfour didn't realize that the Zionists were going to interpret this as meaning a state, or if he did realize it, he was covering up. And of course, as always with this kind of research, when I was reading through the documents, the most interesting and the most uh, enlightening comments are often the comments in the sidelines of the official papers in pen by middle-ranking officials uh, who give their views and all the way through they are exclaiming uh, with extreme anxiety about the implications of this uh, document, 
how on earth they and people like them down the line are going to implement it. It's going to be impossible to implement, to reconcile this extraordinary idea of uh, building a homeland for this tiny minority of Zionists in Palestine where 98% of the people who live there are Palestinians. Um, they, they, they warn of bloodshed, um, but they also say, my God, you know, it's probably too late to, uh, to go back on this because we're up against this very, very strong Zionist lobbying already. I mean, the problem with it gets even stronger as the mandate itself is negotiated, because now we have the background of the whole new post-world order where self-determination for these new emerging states is the order of the day, and we're going to give self-determination to the other countries in our, in our mandate, um, but apparently not to the Palestinians. How do we justify that? Well, we don't really try very hard is the answer. And what we do is we then produce the keys that the Zionists needed and wanted if they were to do the thing they wanted most, which is to create a majority in Palestine. And those keys were twofold, they're very simple. We uh, permitted immigration at large scale and we made it much, much easier for the Zionists to buy land. Both these things have been difficult under the Ottoman Empire. The Sultan had tried to control it. We, um, we opened both immigration and land purchasing up, made it much more easier. So, of course, uh, the immigrants started coming in, in steamers to Jaffa, and the land sales started. Now, of course, the, uh, the Palestinians did see what the Balfour Declaration meant. Um, they saw the people coming off the boats in Jaffa and uh, they saw a lot of Bolsheviks arriving. They saw people that didn't look like the Europeans that even they knew to date. They saw people not only were they moving in amongst them and, 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 and building colonies near them, but these were people that seemed to be an affront to the whole of Islam. They were dressed scantily, they were swimming in naked. All sorts of stories were swimming around about what they were doing and they were parading in the streets of Jaffa with communist banners. So we get the first riot, not surprising. The bloodshed didn't take long to start spilling. Um, first riot was in Jerusalem in 1920 and we get the first Royal Commission of Inquiry by a man called Palin, who held a perfectly good inquiry, listened to evidence, and concluded this couldn't work, that the Balfour Declaration was a construct that couldn't work. His report was simply shoved on one side and suppressed. Well, it was suppressed for many decades. But then an even worse riot happened in Jaffa. And again, we have the scene was really kind of almost absurd. If you read the details of it, you have Bolsheviks coming off the steamers, walking through these narrow um, Arab streets in Jaffa with their banners. We have the Arabs with sticks trying to fight them. And then out and spreads out to the villages. And we have the British desperately trying to control the situation with the Indian cavalry 
charging through the olive groves with terrible bloodshed and altogether um, a desperate and farcical, if not so tragic, uh, uprising. Then we have the second Royal Commission of Inquiry by a man called Haycraft. And I do recommend that if you're interested, you read this because it's a very brilliantly written, very fair, very colorful, very sad report. Um, but at the end of it, Haycraft also concludes that the Balfour Declaration, I mean, he doesn't say this in so many words, but this is what the, uh, the, the meaning is, that it won't work. And he says, he dismisses what the Zionists are by then saying, because they're trying to play down what's happening by telling the Brits that these are just some agitators. The, 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 the fellaheen, the peasants, are not really against the Zionists. But Haycraft doesn't agree. He says that there are genuine fears because he's listened to the Arabs. He's actually the first person to do so. And possibly one of the last so, but he is also ignored. His report said on one side and, and we roll on. Um, meanwhile, Herbert Samuel has taken over as High Commissioner and the twenties begin. And it goes quiet for a few years because Herbert Samuel has actually a sensible man in many ways. And he has realized that this is a, not necessarily gonna work as easy as he might have once thought. And he has, they've imposed some limits on immigration, which quietens things down a bit for a while. But they've also adopted the view, for themselves anyway, within the mandate, within the British authorities, uh, within the Foreign Office, the Colonial Office, and the High Commission in, 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 in Palestine, that Zionism will be good for everyone. This is what the Zionists are saying. This is what they're telling them. The Zionists are very good at innovating, at energizing at draining the swamps and all of this is going to pay off hugely for the Palestinians. They will benefit from the incoming Zionism. This is the only rationale we now have for what is happening and the Brits hang on to it for dear life but it becomes quite obvious that it isn't happening. By sort of 1925, 26, British district officials who are more of these middle-ranking officials who just have to take the, pick up the rubbish, pick up the flat, you know, the, mend, the, mend the holes in this whole affair, are going around seeing the villagers becoming poorer and poorer and having to sell their land. And the reason is because the Zionists are, are, are embedding there, but they're doing what they're doing separately. They are not, some of them do, but very few. On the whole, they're not employing Arabs. They are building separate colonies. Uh, they are building separate institutions. They don't want to, and nor are they attempting to, actually help the uh, Palestinian Arabs, except in one exception, which is that they put doctors in some of these colonies, and the doctors do work with the Arab villages and helping them cure eye diseases, helping them cure malaria, and so on. And that is an exception. And some of it, no doubt, is entirely altruistic. But one has to ask also to what extent it was because they didn't want these infections to cross-infect into the settlements. In any event, um, 
a new catastrophe is, is, is growing because what is happening by the late 20s is that we have a situation with increasing numbers of landless Arabs and the British is spending huge amounts of money and, and paperwork on analysing the problem of the landless Arab because they're being made landless because they are so poor they're, they're, they're becoming indebted to uh, money lenders and so on and whereas um, in other colonies, traditional colonies, they might have been working on the, uh, on the settlers' plantations. This is not happening in Palestine. And what's more, the Brits are having to tax them to the hilt because we need to get money to pay for this project somehow. But of course, they don't have taxes and, and they're becoming landless and they're becoming restless. And there's another riot. In 1929, the biggest one so far in Jerusalem, unfortunately, Sir John Chancellor, the the hapless uh, consul general at the time had just gone on holiday before it broke out. Uh, bad mood because it was a big, big mess and a terrible uh, killings and um, on both sides, not only in Jerusalem, but also in Hebron, Safed, and Nazareth and Nablus. So Chancellor comes back from his holiday and his first act is to come down like a ton of bricks on the, uh, on the men of violence on both sides, um, particularly the Arabs who are for the first time are now criminalized really quite seriously. Uh, they, 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 it's no longer just that they're angry, that they're protesters, they're criminals and many are executed. But Chancellor seems to see the light. Two new Royal Commissions are done both study the situation, both warn about the risks of landless Arabs. Where are these landless Arabs that have been made landless in large part because landless Jews came and settled in Palestine? Where are these landless Arabs gonna go? What's gonna happen to them? No answer to that. So Chancellor thinks, he sees this, he sees the light. He's probably the last person who has a chance to reverse some of the worst failings of the Balfour Declaration and, 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 and give, the, give, 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 give the Arabs a chance to get their own independence, to build up their own political and national rights. Puts forward a white paper with Lord Passfield, goes to the House of Commons. It's going through at the last minute, the lobbying from the Zionists builds up to a pitch and it is defeated. Next time there's a riot, this is the Arab revolt of 1936, the biggest yet, huge across the entire Palestine. The Britain, Brits only have one response at the time and they get in a man called Wingate, Ward Wingate, who with his night squads, his house demolition squads, he basically crushes the revolt with unbelievable brutality. There is actually, I saw this week, a uh, demolition order put on the statue of Ord Wingate, which is somewhere down in Westminster. He does have a statue before his work in Burma, I think particularly, but I must say, I don't think any Palestinian will be sorry to see his statue demolished. So in a sense, at this point, I have to say the rest is history. Uh, I haven't even mentioned the Nakba and the, um, because by the time we get to 1948, 
and the war which followed the decision to partition Palestine, the Brits have already given up. We recognize now that the Balfour Declaration was a catastrophe. We've handed over to the United Nations. They have come up with this idea of petition, partition. Uh, the Palestinians who still own, uh, who, who, who still represent by far the majority of the population, uh, the um, Jews only own 6% of the land in 1948. So therefore naturally the Palestinians reject partition. What happens next, as we know, was the war of 1948. And under the cover of this war, the uh, Zionists basically evict the villagers, 200 villagers from the district of Gaza alone, who are still in the Gaza Strip today. So you won't be surprised to hear that I think in the view of this assessment of the story that the Balfour edifice, which is the declaration, should indeed be toppled. But I just like to conclude by saying that we have to ask ourselves whether the events that have happened since Balfour died, which after all was in 1930, I believe, we can't lay them all at his door. Why has the world not corrected, put right, tried to equalize at least the state of rights in Palestine since then? And of course there have been attempts, we know that. There have been loads of attempts to make peace. But still, Palestinian lives don't appear to matter given the situation that the Palestinians now live. It's not only that, I'd like to say also that one of the reasons I believe that the Palestinian lives have been uh, omitted from the narrative, more, I would say, than black lives have been omitted from their narrative, it, because we haven't even got to the stage of accepting the original sin, the original injustice. We recognized many, many decades ago, in theory, that slavery, Slavery was a crime, was unacceptable in the modern era, but we, most part, it is not recognized that the um, fate of the Palestinians was unacceptable in the way that slavery was. And therefore it's not even yet entered the narrative, Never mind, do we have a chance to correct it. So I would just like to say that in conclusion, as we cannot, actually topple the statue of Balfour because it doesn't exist, why don't we think about rewriting the Balfour Declaration? Um, I think that might be a positive way to begin to rewrite the narrative. And I would like to propose a text. We might say, for example, that Her Majesty's government favors the establishment of one democratic state for all its citizens, Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs, all living in peace. Discuss. So with that thought in mind, I'll leave you open to questions. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was really interesting. Um, we've had so many questions come in. We're going to try to get through as many as possible. 
um, because honestly, there's so many. One thing I will say, there's been a lot of people asking about things like the Peel Commission, McMahon, McMahon Correspondence, Heim Wiseman, etc. Um, we cover these quite a bit, quite extensively in past talks. So I really recommend if you're interested in those kinds of topics that um, have a little look at the link I posted, uh, balfourproject.org forward slash podcast. Um, because we've got our previous audio and video recordings and transcripts of our past events where we covered these extensively. So I'm going to skip over a lot of those because um, we've covered them already. Um, I'm also going to skip over questions that were asked early on that I feel like you probably answered during your talk. And um, also, I'm really sorry, but if you've asked more than one question, I'll probably only be able to ask one of yours. So hopefully I pick your favorite. Um, I'll start with um, early on when you were talking about your book um, about Gaza and um, we had a question from Johnny uh, Barn, Barn. Um, are you interviewing people in Gaza how do you actually in Gaza I think he means and how do you manage to travel there well it's a good question um, of course as you know it's very very difficult to get into Gaza now there are controls on everybody going in including foreigners um, uh, recently, by the way, with the coronavirus, it's just like impossible. So just, just but, but before the coronavirus came out, the, um, the Israelis control all exits and entrance through Eretz, which is the only checkpoint into Israel. Uh, the Egyptians control entrances and exits into Egypt at Rafah. Uh, but for someone like me, the only way to get in is to go in as a foreign correspondent, which is what I do. By the way, all Israeli journalists are banned, all Israelis, period, are banned from going into Gaza. It's important to remember that because the Israelis have really forgotten what Gaza is, what it looks like, what they wonder what people in Gaza, you know, who on earth they are. But uh, we are allowed in, but only under very, very stringent conditions. I have to prove all sorts of things. I have to be sponsored by a newspaper. I have to uh, show that I'm currently writing. I have to <clears throat> uh, give them examples of my work. And I have to tell you, I was banned myself uh, in 2018 and uh, we had to appeal against, <coughs> against it and I actually won the appeal. But I go through Eretz checkpoint in practical terms, I turn up at Eretz, I go through this extraordinary kind of um, really surreal checkpoint where there's almost nobody there. Usually often I find I'm, I'm the only person and when you go through the, finally get through the checkpoint, there's a little door that says literally Gaza and you press the door and it doesn't open. It's like Kafka-esque doesn't even begin to describe it. And the mile long. Um, and then of course, yes, you finally get through, I haven't even mentioned that this is whole process and you finally get through and there's this extraordinary sort of cage that you have to walk through all the way up across no man's land basically, which seems to get longer and longer. And there are these wonderful goats that are sort of around that come and nuzzle up against the cage and and, and, and then you get all the litter, because of course the people of Gaza live far, far up at the other end of this cage and there's all this sort of litter begins to accumulate against the wire and you know they're there, but all at the moment you can see is the litter. It's really surreal. Um, yeah, uh, Donnie says thank you for answering that and he said he didn't realise foreign correspondents could get in. Obviously, with you said it, it's not guaranteed, <laughs> but... Um, um, tell me if you want to touch on this. We've got... a. A couple of questions that have come in in advance, for example, from Alfredo, um, Roldan Flores, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he's here today, hello. Um, oh, I'm so sorry, Johnny is a woman, he's just, she's just said, um, apologies, I shouldn't have made that assumption, um, but 
I hope you enjoy the talk anyways. Um, so Alfredo Roldan Flores has um, emailed in advance and some other people have asked questions as well about um, one state, two state, <laughs> always topical. And um, so yeah, just uh, wanted to ask your opinion. Alfredo says, is, this, is it a, a mask that has provided Israel with the perfect cover to annex daily, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, I mean, let me tell you, I was a reporter out in, in, in Jerusalem in, during the Oslo period. So I covered the Oslo and the two state, um, the beginnings of that whole process. Uh, at that time, obviously, there were, there, were, there were various views on this. Uh, there were those who were always against a two-state solution, always thought it was a sellout by Arafat and the Palestinians, because as, as I kind of touched on in my talk, it meant giving up uh, you know, half of, of the Palestinian land, which they thought they shouldn't have had to give up on the in the first place. On the other hand, it seemed to offer the possibility of at least a kind of self-respecting state or something to start with. And I, I never quite knew which side I stood on until I went to Gaza, actually on the day that they signed the, um, the peace agreement that is Yitzhak Rabin and Arafat on the White House lawn. And I was in Gaza that day. And you know what? It was quite extraordinary. That morning started off, so they signed the thing at midday and the morning started off in Gaza with kind of tires burning and black flags everywhere and Hamas flags out there and you felt this is, doesn't have a good feel. But the minute that handshake took place and I watched it on a television screen in a, in a cafe in Gaza City, the whole place burst out with Palestinian flags flying and children laughing and parties and whole dubs of peace appeared on the walls in Gaza. And it was the most euphoric moment I think I've ever experienced in my life. They wanted peace. And also the, remember the Arab, the, the Israeli soldiers were still in occupation at that time, because at that time there the, were Israeli feet, feet on the ground in Gaza and they, they were watching on this. And I remember going up to an Israeli soldier and I was saying, what do you think about this? They, you know, they seem pretty happy. Don't they? And I said, are you in favor of this deal? And he said, well, looks like they want peace if they want peace that's good we can go with it so that there is this desire on the on, on the israeli side for peace that all fell apart as we know because for all sorts of reasons which take too long to discuss and i now think we've moved beyond that i don't think there's any going back to that i didn't go to back to palestine for many years um during which this all changed when i went back young palestinians were not talking about anything two state was old it was history they were talking about 48 lands. They want to go back to their 48 lands. They were um, remembering their villages, the villages, the whole history of pre-48 and the Gaza district villages and all the villages was much, much more in the mind than it had been when I was there because under Oslo, it was 67 people were talking about, but that had been, um, that had been basically undermined by the failings. And now the answer had to be returned to 48. But I also believe strongly that if the Israelis say this is impossible, because this means we can't have a Jewish state, this means we can't have a Jewish homeland, and the Arabs hate us, that's what you get. I ask them, I say, what do you think about, what's wrong with the one state? Why can't you, because look, you go on the light railway in Jerusalem, there are Arabs, there are Jews, you're all working together. You, some of you get on pretty well together. What's the problem? Uh, you know, I mean, Diana here, you know, she, I'm sure she mixes with Jews in London. I mean. What is the problem? Get on I with it. I don't mix with anyone. But. Okay. Well, anyway, um, so but yeah. but the answer is the answer comes back. 
it'll never happen because that will mean we have to not have our Jewish state, number one, and number two, because the Arabs hate us. I actually don't think that the Arabs do hate the Jews in that sense at all. I think if everyone thought a huge underpinning and huge support, I believe it's the only way, but it's a heck of a long way off. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I'm going to move along because we've got so many questions. Um, we've had quite a few come in from Noru Salik. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing names correctly. Apologies if not. Um, Sorry, you've also asked a couple of questions, so um, I will just touch on a couple. But um, they have asked about the Ottoman Empire and why we're focusing on the European colonialism and imperialism and not the Ottoman. Um, I mean, I would just like to say that we don't have time to cover the whole entire history of the world in one hour. Um, so that's partly why. Um, but do you have anything you want to touch on with regard to that? He, uh, sorry, I mean, they I, I, say yeah. the Ottomans centered on Istanbul and the edges of Europe tended to look west, not east. They generally despised the Arabs, ruled them by corrupt and incompetent governors and in general neglected the place. Any comments uh, on that? Yeah, I think that it's true that the, uh, you know, the Arabs, the, 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 the Sultan tended to, you know, in the period that I know about anyway, which is the later part of the 19th century, you know, the Arab, the, the, the Ottoman Empire was in a really bad way. It was incredibly short of money. It was having trouble in sorts of, sorts of areas and wars and the Balkans were uprising and so on. And they largely had left the Palestinians be just to get on with their own lives. And that's partly why they became so cut off and so uh, dependent on themselves. And the, the peasant farmers were not interfered with very much, except they had to pay Ottoman taxes, of course. No, and, and also they were exploited for that and the Sultan didn't do a great deal for them. But he, he was very interested though in the Palestinians. He's got a wonderful photograph album of amazing um, uh, Palestinian scenes during the Ottoman period. And he did try to, um, to protect them against the Zionist colonization in, in the early years because he could see that this, not because he was in any way anti-Jewish as far as I can tell, but because he thought this is, he knew this was gonna cause problems like he didn't want another problem like he'd had in the Balkans. He wanted to keep Palestine quiet. So he tried to control Jewish immigration, but he failed because of what I was talking about with the European presence, the European consuls who, who had their own powers outside Ottoman law, who let immigrants come in round the back. Now, I'm, I'm sure the Ottoman, I don't know a great deal about the wider Ottoman. I'm certainly not the expert to talk, there are many others who are. I can just talk a little bit about Palestine's, Palestinians of that period. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that the that the Ottoman Empire uh, treated the Palestinian peasants uh, particularly well. On the other hand, you know they were coming. The Ottoman Empire was crumbling; it was coming to an end. It was on its last legs. So I can't say much more than that. Well, kind of following on from that, um, David Wetton um, has said that Britain had already promised the Arabs independence from the Ottoman Empire in the 1915 Hussein McMahon correspondence. The British had also promised the French in a separate treaty known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement that the majority of Palestine would be under international administration while the rest of the region would be split between two, between the two colonial powers after the war. How did Balfour justify, justify ignoring these previous promises through his declaration? Or did well, he... the answer to that is he didn't justify it. He just got on with it and did it. I mean, you know, it's quite stunning. You're right. That's why I mentioned that it was so interesting when I discovered that they decided to keep the Balfour Declaration secret 
which I mentioned, particularly including from the British forces in the Middle East, um, in, you know, people working under Allenby. I'm sure Allenby knew about it. He didn't like it, by the way. But they kept it secret from the Arabs as well, partly, obviously, because they knew about this promise and the McMahon correspondence and all the rest of it, which, which, which and the deals that were done with, with Faisal to give them the Arab kingdom. Uh, they just, the arrogance of these guys is stunning. They just did what they felt they wanted to do and got on with it. They just undermined all of that. And the betrayal was done. And they went down to the club in Palmal and said, you know, it's all, all the good of the empire, old chap. And what, that's it. I don't think there's a more subtle explanation than that. Well, um, my questions are following on very nicely. Um, so you mentioned that the Balfour Declaration was um, they aim to keep it a secret to avoid any kind of resistance, right? Um, well, John quickly asked, the Balfour Declaration was published a few days later in the Times. Does anyone know how the Times got it? Did the War Cabinet want it published? Was it leaked by someone? Do you have any insight into that? A few, a few days after the uh, after November the 2nd, 1917. I presume, yes. Yeah. Um, I I don't know that. I, I have no idea about that. I, I suspect that uh, it was probably the Zionist uh, movement that had it published because, of course, it suited them to show that they were moving on. It helped them getting support from other Zionists around the world in America and so on and get money flowing in. I mean, the, the, the uh, question, if, if it was published in the Times that soon after, you might also want to ask how on earth did they manage to keep it secret? From the Arabs in Palestine and from the British in the Middle East. The answer to that is, you know, it's quite astonishing that you, with the internet and the whole world we live in, and here we are in a Zoom meeting, but these places were so cut off. Communication was so limited, especially during war. I mean, the villages in, in Palestine, I mean, of course, the people in the, the leaders in Jerusalem and, and Jaffa would have learned uh, much earlier, but the, the ordinary Palestinians they literally were living in their own world. They didn't know what was going on. They had no means of finding out. There were no newspapers during the war. There was no communication during the war. The Ottomans were fighting all around them. So they didn't know. So it wasn't so hard to keep it from them. But in terms of something appearing in the Times, I would say almost certainly that would have been leaked by probably Herbert Samuel or, or Weizmann or one of these uh, powerful Jewish figures in London at the time who saw it was in their interest to leak it. Um, thanks for that. I have a question from um, Magan. What was the response of the Palestinian Jews in brackets 2% at that time, 1925 onwards? Um, well, first of all, they didn't call themselves, uh, so it's interesting that news of Palestinian Jews, actually the, the Arabs talk about a group called Jewish Palestinians who were the Jews who lived in Palestine um, in a settled fashion and had done for hundreds of years before the actual Zionists turned up. So just to distinguish them, they, they, they lived as Ottoman citizens, by the way, and, and lived quite, quite at ease with their Arab neighbours. But then, then we have the Zionists and, and uh, it's funny, I haven't heard them called Palestinian Jews before, but anyway, I know what you mean. So their reaction was they were absolutely over the moon, of course. Uh, they were over the moon, this gave them the chance they needed, this gave them the chance to actually uh, legally bring immigrants in, legally buy land, um, and also those who were thinking of coming were celebrating too. So for example, I've read that in the synagogues all across southern Russia, the minute the Balfour Declaration, that it certainly wasn't kept secret from them, because again, we needed them to know 
in order for money to come in and for immigrants to start booking their tickets from Odessa, uh, steamers to Jaffa. So um, they were celebrating. No, they thought it was great. They started getting less um, supportive when they realized that, to, to, that the Brits were beginning to back off a bit. So as the Brits back off a little bit, like beginning to control immigration a little bit later in the 20s because of the Arab riots, then the Zionists say, hang on, what are you doing? So, but at the first days, they were over the moon. Um, I am going to ask you one last question because we're coming up to the end of our time. This one's from Gillian Mosley. Um, when you discuss early Zionists, are you referring to all of the Jews who migrated to Palestine, also including, including those who had been in situ for quite some time? What approximate date are you suggesting this actually started, i.e. can we have a clarified timeline, please? Yeah, sure. Um, the first, the first, I, my research suggests, and I think I'm right, uh, that the first Zionist settlement was called Petatikva, and it was Petatikva was built on top of the first erased Palestinian village, which is called Malabas, it's quite near to Jaffa, and the settlers arrived in 1878. The uh, contest over that piece of land and that settlement continued for some years, but it began in 1878, and then in the 1880s, about four or five new colonies were placed around the place, around that area, around um, for example, a little bit further south, Rehovot was put on top of Diran, and, and, and there was uh, Rishon Letzion, and there was Zikron Yaakov. These were all settlements that were placed in Palestine in the 1880s and early 1890s. So that's, it begins in 1878. That's my information. Well, Sarah, we've come up to our end of, um, to the end of our time. Um, I just want to thank everyone who came along to listen. Um, I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. And Sarah, thank you so much on behalf of the Balfour Project for coming along and doing this talk. It was super fascinating. Thank um, you so much for having me. Uh, we will be, um, well, this has been recorded, so we'll post it on the, the website and as well along with the transcript. And I have posted in the chat box as well our upcoming events with Tim Llewellyn on um, another really interesting topic, how the media has covered the Palestine-Israel um, question. And um, we've also got our, uh, we've got an, a conference in October, October 27th, um, which will be covering, which will be largely focused on Jerusalem, but covering the politics, religion, et cetera, et cetera. So we hope everyone can come along. Um, thank you all <laughs> to all the people thanking us, Sarah, lots of people thanking us. Um, I can give you the quick numbers. We had at our most about 230 people here today um, and lots more registered. So, and lots of people who've told us that they're gonna have to catch it up, um, you know, watch a recording after the fact because they can't come to the actual time. Um, so I will say goodbye again and thank you again, Sarah and all thank of our you listeners. All. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye everyone.